Okay, so uh, da da start again. <laughs> uh, fortunately, that was like the bit where we'll have the music anyway, so we can cut and paste it. to the 11th episode of the Freedom of Form Foundation podcast. I'm your host, Atamanatha Kitsune, and here with me I have our wonderful Flappy Bird, Ondrik. Hello. And the Duke with the most scientific knowledge in any ferretdom. It is Cyberdrak. It's I. It's me. I'm the Duke. Yes. So, uh, welcome to our podcast, and uh, we are going to be talking about all things for science today. Science in capitals, of course. With any any Bill Nye gift that you need, any Bill Nye gift, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah, Newton as played by Will Yankovic, whatever, whatever you need. Professor Brian Cox, perhaps. I don't know that one. Oh, he's um, quite famous for having been the lead singer, correction, keyboard player, singer of D-Ream, you know, the, the singers behind uh, Things Can Only Get Better, uh, and then having transitioned into being a physicist um, and science communicator. Ah. Um, and he regularly does talks at the Royal Institute in London. Cool. Huh. But yeah, uh, I, I thought it would be cool to start this conversation off with um what what is science when we're when we're talking about science what actually is science and uh to me the best way to approach that question is actually science is the application of the scientific method yes um, and for any listeners who are not familiar with maybe the uh more formal concept behind the scientific method uh, i'm probably not going to remember every single step for its name but Basically, you have uh, uh, an observation or a question. You can start with either the observation or the question. If you don't have your question yet, after you've made the observation, now you need one. So you see something, um, you know, you see leaves changing color. And you ask, well, what's causing the leaves to change color? And then you need to divine, uh, devise a set of experiments or a singular experiment um, that is going to attempt to address your hypothesis. And your hypothesis is going to be, well, I think the leaves change color because there's a coalition of fairies that is responsible for it. So I now need to come up with a means of testing such a hypothesis. Um, and then I run my experiment. Whatever my experiment is, I do it, I collect the data. I'm very rigorous about the data I collect. I don't start changing things halfway through. I have made my decision, go through it, do the thing, now I have my data. 
analyze it, put any numbers on uh, the, the fairy statistics you've acquired that you need to, and um, then you come back and say, well, does this conclusively address my hypothesis? And if it doesn't, right. then you need to go back and iterate and iterate and iterate until you have a satisfying answer to whether your hypothesis is true or not. I think it's safe to say that that is a description of science as we know it in the sort of modern world and how scientists really approach things in every sort of reasonable institution and organization and uh, university and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have thought about the question of, like, how does one improve on the scientific method um, an awful lot? And... I do not have an expansive enough imagination to see an actual meaningful improvement that could be made. Because if you take out any part of that process, um, then suddenly your your conclusions no longer become valid. You're either not asking a question that makes sense, you're not addressing the question, or you're not looking at the data, or um, there's there's something missing that turns your science into not science, but instead magical thinking which is fine but it's not science and it is not rigorous that's understandable absolutely what if though instead of taking away from the scientific method you were to add um a sort of like pre and post stages to it if i had to add something to the end of it it is the dissemination of that knowledge any any knowledge that you acquire needs to then be communicable to other people um one thing that I wanted to say regarding how you would improve on a scientific method, I don't really think that question was probably already answered as the scientific method was being developed. Um, looking at Wikipedia, that was like some 200 years ago. So in that time, the scientific method was, I would say, most likely optimized to such a point that you cannot really remove anything without it just falling apart, as you said. What would you add to the beginning, Atha? What I would add to the beginning is a little bit of consideration of what it is we actually want to achieve. Because I think at the moment, a lot of scientists are quite happy to just pick any thing that isn't known, regardless of its... Um, well, I mean, obviously, quite a lot of scientists want to do something relevant, but, you know, there's also a, a significant number of them who will just pick anything that isn't known, regardless of its relevance, really, to a specific goal, uh, as long as it is something they can write a paper about and it gets them impact factor in the journals. And I find that a bit sad. Um, now, obviously, there are examples where you can, you know, write a paper that seems not to have any particular relevance, and then later it gains relevance, and that could be very handy. Um, but I do think that it helps if you have a sort of overarching goal in mind of what is it that you believe is going to be the use of such a discovery? Um, you know, if if your particular uh, hypothesis rings true or if it, you know, turns out that you get a negative result, what are the implications of your work and can you sort of aim your uh, scientific investigations in directions that will be the most conducive to engineering things that perhaps 
people previously thought were magical. Well, um, Thradar thought maybe things don't need to have the use, maybe the just the discovery of it to um, satiate the inherent human curiosity is enough of a use. For instance, uh, the question about whether the universe is expanding or not, that isn't really going to be used because, yeah, it's the universe is just so big and the the interesting parts you could say are so far away that there isn't really a chance to use it use it but just knowing that it's expanding is already an interesting thing in and of itself well you see i think that knowing that the universe is expanding does have practical uses um not just in terms of astronomy um or indeed even just in terms of you know the potential minor impacts that that might have on physics on earth and on being able to discover um like you know different particles in the standard model which is quite a big field in and of itself um but also like there is the potential that we will be able to explore further into the universe one day and travel you know if not faster than the speed of light in the literal sense of traveling through space-time then perhaps find some way to skip parts of space-time you know warp drive or something similar to that um so i think the mapping and understanding the expansion of of the universe is a very useful thing indeed now perhaps that's um where this would boil down to just essentially debates about well what is useful and what isn't and perhaps it turns out everything is maybe everything that scientists are working out will have a use one day i kind of want i want to poke what you were initially saying at the into two different things because I agree with Audrey here that um, there's there is a place for satisfying human curiosity. Uh, I mm. think that without broad human curiosity, I, I really do believe that that was part of getting us to the moon in the first place. It was definitely part of getting us to Mars, uh, and it's definitely part of people caring about whether there were life, there was life, or even the real conditions for life on Mars. The, obviously that's not going to impact us. Um, if, if there was life on Mars, no one cares. Uh, that, that There's no technology that's going to come out of that. It's incredibly well, there might be. There, there could be. See, and that's where I'm going with my second point, which is that, or I think with part of that point, which is that um, that curiosity and the willingness to learn and the ability to be uh, uh, present and aware and ready to learn uh, is what makes a good scientist because that's how you get penicillin um, is when you don't really know what you're doing. Um, you, you know that you're trying to learn something. You are willing to, uh, to acquire technology just from having learned it in the first place out of that raw curiosity. The other thing that I think you were getting at is that is something that actually came up. I went to a rare, um, it's called the, an orphan disease symposium. Uh, some people yeah. don't like the term orphan for these diseases, but th these are rare diseases. Um, and in that symposium, there came up the, the problem, um, especially from the patient side of things and the patient advocacy side of things, where yes, scientists want to publish and they will do things that they are not aware necessarily are morally reprehensible um, to get those publications and get them into prestigious journals. 
and things mm-hmm. will happen like um you know clinical trials will not conclude or the data on the trials will not be published or the drug itself will not be put into patients hands because you know i i really wanted to get 27 mice in this experiment and i only have 20 and i can't get into nature if i don't have 27 mice you know um and the drive of i just want to publish and that's all i care about i don't care about what the real world impact of this science is um that is i think part of what you were getting at as well yes yeah um and so so i I agree Uh, to me i imagine uh that kind of goes into the question part of this where when you're coming up with your scientific question um we could perhaps append a good or a relevant or or something you know something like that to the question that you're coming up with yeah um to give it a a better a more humane uh uh slant and now this kind of brings us to the question of um do you think engineers count as a kind of scientist of course yeah i think i think i i I love engineers i think they're wonderful they are uh and it applies to many different disciplines particularly like blacksmiths uh they but the idea i don't know about the idea behind your question but i'm happy to talk about engineers because i think engineering is fascinating an an engineer is someone who is solving a problem with technology right now they they need i have a friend who needs to track turtles um and the and they're doing it from an engineering standpoint there are a couple scientists on the teams uh, on the team or, or you know as we would classically define scientists um but the team is mostly engineers and they're like well how much duct tape will get a camera onto this pole and keep it on the pole? Because they're they're solving the thing right here in the real world right now. Uh, yes, my conception of engineers. Um, sure people their their definitions and stuff, but I, I have great respect for them because they don't hide in a lab um, for ages and ages and try to publish. Uh, they you know start hammering away at things and riveting things to other things um and get a piece of technology out there awesome so uh Andrik, do you um yeah. do you think that we should have more um sort of scientifically minded engineers or engineering minded scientists hmm i think we could I think we could use a bit of both because the engineers they could provide some valuable insight into how um, the science is actually applied but then the scientists could also kind of do the same thing and yeah I think it's um, important that uh, we would I guess not really solve science since that's not really feasible but try to get as much of that done as possible. Just have a complete documentation of everything that's as complete as possible. Then we can see what we can make from that. Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed a lot with um, engineers who create useful and interesting tools that are perhaps a little bit niches. 
they seldom seem to give themselves the time to create documentation. Um, so I ask any of you listeners out there, please, if you're creating something, remember to document it because it's not just you that's going to be using it. Even if you think you're the only user that could possibly ever want it, you'd be surprised. You know, the moment you publish it on the internet, somebody somewhere in the world, out of you know 7.8 billion people, is going to find a use for it. Oh, that that reminds me of an experience I had with, um, I guess, a colleague. You could say. Yeah. Like he would make tools, but these tools were ridiculously like it was honestly ridiculous how user unfriendly they were <laughs> or you had to put in you had to put in numbers but the numbers had to be in hexadecimal and if you got them <laughs> wrong instead of a file being a normal size it would be 50 gigabytes oh god <laughs> then had to delete all of that and try again and it was actually it was actually so horrible i made my own tool to actually like do it better wow <laughs> I, um I, I encourage anyone who has not encountered the frustrations of software engineers who run into code that is not appropriately commented look up what happened with the uh programming of i think it was half-life um they recently some uh of the commenting that was left by uh people who were working on that project was released and there have been a couple of videos made about it and and, and it's just programmers going mad as they attempt to parse code that has not been commented, but then they're writing in their own. And they're like, this works. We don't know why, but it works. Don't touch it. <laughs> I need to see that. It's very but also, another thing uh, you could look at is uh, the Mars Climate Orbiter, where the people who made the thrusters gave NASA their, the, their thrust value in pounds. NASA mm -hmm. thought that they were Newtons, so the probe fired its thrusters for too long, went too deep oh. into the atmosphere, and burned up. Like, ten uh, million dollars or something. I don't really know how much it costs. I'm gonna look it up. And this and is why... Burned up. And this is why the US needs to switch to metric. Well, technically they have. All the imperial measures are literally defined by law in their metric equivalent, since there was a metric conversion act passed in some year problem is it wasn't mandatory yeah there there have been a couple of um not that i agree with them but there have been a couple of studies done on the literal cost for us to switch all the way over oh. to metric okay um, so the, so the cost was pretty, actually 300 million dollars jesus christ what of the pardon, uh, pardon. of the probe you mean uh, yes yeah uh, and I, I have not read those studies. This was uh, a pushback that I got from someone when I said, uh, why, why can't we just switch over? Because we really should. Um, and someone was like, the math has been done on, on why we're not switching back over. Partially, we're stubborn assholes and we're just not going to do it. But, but partially, the, uh, the financial cost is quite high. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, consider the financial to... cost of mistakes like that one with the MERS probe. I yeah. guarantee you yeah. that is a tiny fraction of a percentage of... Uh, what it would actually cost. Yeah, but if you add them all up over time, all the mistakes that people make. Yeah, you would have to literally add a, you would have to literally change every single road sign, every single piece of code in every program. And like, there's a reason why governments still use Windows XP. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And, yeah. 
I suppose you could temporarily sort of switch to just having everybody you know, drive a lot slower on the roads, you know, 55 kilometres per hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's like suddenly America feels a lot bigger. <laughs> I've always wondered about just like, just you know, slowly slipping it in and not telling everyone, like, you know, someone starts coming out with a line of cars that's like, well, we don't have MPH on here anymore. We've just got, we've just got kilometers per hour. Sorry. I guess you're going to have to learn or, you know, uh, that just means releasing your thermometers. The thermometers are only in uh, centigrade or Celsius or whatever you'll call it. It's, it's, I don't know it's yeah. Celsius. Well, it's both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that I've been trying to learn that I've been re trying real hard to get accustomed to. Uh, yeah, I mean Celsius yeah. is really really easy. If you want, you can also go for Kelvin. That's just Celsius plus two hundred seventy three point <laughs> one five. I think. That's, yeah, I think that that sounds right to me. <laughs> um, right. Uh, for for science for for science for scientific method etc. Um, but where were we were on we were on the value of engineering. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. Mistakes and user friendliness and, and such. Yeah, and the, and the problem of having poor documentation. Um, yeah, documentation is one of the things that it gets taught fairly rigorously and then unfortunately gets ignored a lot. Uh, I'm I, not the not the best documenter um, myself, but there is uh, a lot of effort that is put into having excellent. Um, robust information and and more and more actually uh, different journals uh, sorry scientific publishing journals are pushing for uh, when you submit a paper you also have to submit all of your raw data yeah um, and that is obviously there's a lot of pushback about that I don't want to give you my raw data I, I can't trust journals because journals also have a lot of corruption in them yada 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 uh, but by by pushing for this, it is making people they they have to keep everything and they have to keep it organized. And well, here's that is a good thing. Here's a thought: when scientists um, create tools to process their data or tools to, you know, do part of their experiment, um, often you know those tools might be software based, um, or even if they're hardware based for that matter, you, know, you can use the schematics. You could release the code or the schematics etc open source um, which a lot of scientists already do uh, but then the journals could say to the scientists hey you've got to actually provide documentation for how to use this as well I don't know if they do that uh, I as someone who has never submitted anything software related um, I I don't know if they require that you actually have a, a documentation or, or sorry like a like a user user friendly guide yeah i know that the r community which is extremely big among bioinformaticists um tends to be in incredibly good to each other when i was trying to get into it just a teensy bit last year yeah um one of the things that stood out in when i was like going on forums or whatever was that people have have very high respect um, for that community's willingness to make sure everyone can use each thing that they create. Um, that's probably not true in, in all languages, but at least that one, which is relevant to what I do, 
yep. um, does have a good reputation. As I understand, R is the sort of um, zeitgeist and the main language for bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there's also libraries in Python and Java that are used quite a lot for bioinformatics, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Python's definitely used. I don't know Java. Uh, I don't know how it's how it's applied or how widely it's applied, um, but. But R, obviously, because R can handle your, you know, 23 billion column spreadsheet um, yeah. that you're using, so. <laughs> 23 billion columns. Can you imagine how many letters are at the top of the columns at the right-hand edge of that? Damn. Yep. It's <laughs> but, but R doesn't care. R just looks at it and it's like, yeah, boss, okay, I can, <laughs> I, I can parse this. Magnificent, isn't it? Um, just a little tidbit because because I like this piece of information. Um, in I, I want to say it was 2014, some random postdoc who was a, a bioinformaticist um, realized that by slightly changing the way that you um, parse or uh, uh, compile all of your different reads from, for instance, an RNA sequencing read or something like that. Yeah, uh, you change that a little bit so that you um, so that the software didn't need to be as perfect. If you made the software a little bit more loosey goosey, suddenly everyone can now do bioinformatics with RNA seq on their home computer. I was doing it on my little uh, laptop, hmm. uh, and this is just a random dude. I. Uh, who was working on it? He, I think, his uh, academic, um, uh, what you call it, uh, pedigree was quite good. But uh, he was just some dude, and open sourced it, sent it everywhere. It was like everyone can do bioinformatics now. You're welcome. That was really cool. So now the question is like, how big an impact does that have on the accuracy of the science being done? But none, none, just because of the way the math works. Nice. He had. He had an insight, um, basically, into how many... It was something like how many base pairs you had to have agreeing with each other. Some, something in that. I, I, I'm not going to remember the specifics of it. Um, but the initial ways people were doing it, because they had the same concern, they wanted to have the most perfect uh, reconstruction of a genome possible. Um, they were like, all these base pairs must line up perfectly. We've got it. And he was like, the chance that... Um, that you get it wrong if you allow a few of them to, if you don't look at every single one, is basically zero. So, yeah, by just lowering the number of processing steps um, by a substantial amount, he's able to make this much more accessible to everyone. Well, here's the thing: when when you look at biology and anything you know related to it, everything is analog and a little bit wibbly wobbly. Um, you know. There's no absolute um, perfection sort of, um, you know, 100% matches to be had um, if you look across a, a large data set of anything biological, really. Because there's there's always going to be little mistakes that the molecules themselves make. You know, you get your string of however many millions of base pairs of DNA, and you're telling me that there's never going to be a mistake in any of those where they don't quite line up. 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's built in. Uh, yeah. as, as far as as far as we know, the enzymes that are responsible for replicating DNA are intentionally not perfect. Exactly. Well, quote unquote, intentionally, at, you know, if you assign intentionality to yeah. mother nature evolution, etc. But the, the point being, they they haven't evolved out all of their imperfections. And that's yeah, because they've got good enough, and, and we and survive. They, yeah. yeah, they could evolve out all of those imperfections. The it, better, quote unquote, better enzymes exist, and they've been invented. Yeah, um, but they are not used in nature uh, because it is not advantageous necessarily to have a perfect replication. Um, yeah, when you are trying to become the best thing. But the fact that better enzymes have been developed in the lab. I think is very interesting because it shows that with like intelligent um, scientific kind of thinking and rigor, we can actually outdo nature in terms of um, avoiding the problems that currently afflict us. Um, you know, in however one in however many thousands or millions of people, you know, for, for genetic diseases of various kinds, which when you look at the sheer number of different genetic disorders and diseases that can happen, you know, if, if you just sort of generically say, okay, how many of the population actually have some kind of genetic disorder? It's actually quite a large proportion of people. Extremely high. Yeah. Was the average we are, we are all on average carrying seven, seven recessive lethal mutations. Yeah. Something like that. Uh, that's an old step I know. Oh, lethal mutations. I learned about those in biology. Yeah. I had a test on that like two or something weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So it's, actually, it's fresh. The disease I... Oh, wait. I, we're, we're getting... I, I, I was about to tangent again. I shouldn't tangent again. Uh, this podcast is made of tangents. Please continue. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I... Just very briefly, I work on a particular disease where the disease, 97% of people with the disease have the exact same mutation. Um, and mutations in the gene that is mutated are generally not found outside of in this disease. Um, and it is a topic of considerable interest that uh, what that really means is that other mutations in this gene are lethal um and and cannot occur they they are not compatible with life uh and so out of you know that there are certain mutations there are certain things that you simply cannot have and and still have life um and this one you just got extra unlucky you hit the spot on that gene where yes it can mutate and it's compatible with life but it's a horrific uh, disease. Yeah. So I, th I think it's going to be very handy, you know, when we can have these sort of extra um, safe and extra kind of carefully thought out enzymes that are better than the natural ones and use them when we are trying to avoid a particular disease or problem, but not like use them to entirely... Uh, eliminate natural evolution. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, think there's there's going to be a kind of a middle ground to be struck there, you know. Yeah, 
Uh, I mean, I, I think that humans are going to direct our own evolution from here on out. I, I don't think humans will experience natural evolution ever again, just based on the level of technology that we have. Um, Perhaps. Unless there's, unless there's a catastrophic event, uh, I, I don't believe hmm. there's... Hello? continue please uh, all, all, I was, all I was saying is that I, I, have, I am not a geneticist I am not a bioinformaticist and so I can't say for certain you know any of that kind of stuff but I do not think based on the level of technology and where we are as cultures that we will experience um, evolution as human beings ever again I mean natural I, evolution quote unquote I, mean, uh, I doubt that I think that um we really underestimate, like, we as uh, the three people here in uh, this uh, podcast really underestimate just um, how much of a minority we are with, um, God, I hate that word, privilege. Um, mm -hmm. Because, like, we have it very well, and there are, <laughs> I'm actually saying that, like, because this, uh, these means of uh, changing our genetics, these are probably only going to be available to like the top 10 maybe top 20 percent of the people i mean how many people have like a computer at home how many people have an internet connect uh, percent of the global population i would point out that more people do these days than have ever before and um, if you look even in like relatively poor countries nowadays internet is becoming available at least in every sort of town also and you know, quite a few of the smaller villages are starting to at least have one or two places that, that have some kind of internet. Um, mm -hmm. It is gradually spreading to to more and more corners of the world. And a lot of places where people didn't get desktop computers or laptops, they are getting smartphones, uh, you know, sometimes secondhand from, from the first world, and sometimes directly. Uh, and they're getting onto the internet for the first time because of that, and it's actually something that... Uh, has been noticed by, uh, I think it was the World Bank uh, and the IMF, when they've been saying, well, we, we've had a sudden influx of a lot more people actually joining the banking system, you know, becoming available yeah. uh, to banks uh, to have accounts and be customers because of all these new, um, you know, internet users that are able now to sign up for bank accounts remotely, um, you know, without having to come all the way to a city where the nearest branch is. Um, and they're able then to use that on their phone and, you know, do business and, and be part of the world's sort of system. Yeah. It, the, the reason, the reason I think it, um, is, is not just because, uh, I guess it is because of the availability of basically medical technology. And I know medical technology is not available for incredibly large populations. Yeah. Um, but as the, we're moving extremely fast and evolution is extremely slow uh evolution via natural selection is extremely slow yeah. um and so that's that's why like when when anyone when someone has a mutation in uh a lot of uh in society that has access to such medical technologies it doesn't bother them i can't see and i have terrible teeth um but i'm doing fine 
that it's like because technology means that I'm I'm fine, uh, and and so the uh, human species, as it were, um, is much more permissive uh, to deleterious mutations, um, for sure. Uh, and of course, it's it's permissive to uh, positive mutations. Um, you think about you know certain people who have uh, healthy uh, mutations to their myostatin blockers or whatever. Um, obviously, you know that that can go horrible directions, but it there are cases where it's fine. But that's that's rare, and you know you don't see an expansive uh, an expansion of you know hemen uh, going around because of it. Sure, um, but I'll say that I, I think we haven't seen the last of natural evolution per se in you know humanity or intelligent species that are derived from it uh i think it is still possible that it will happen you know even in populations that are several generations down the line of being uh artificially um evolved or mutated or uh, adjusted in some way um just because of the nature of dna itself and and the way it works but i do think that it will become less of a major factor in um you know, deciding what we are and, and what we become uh, throughout future generations. Uh, and I think the future generations themselves will will be different in terms of their duration and their um, sort of span not only in time but in space as well. Yeah, it kind of depends on how, how broad or narrow your definition of evolution is. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. And I might be taking to... Uh, it, 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 I, I don't know what you call it, maybe too regimented a view or, or something, because you can have a small-scale uh, small scale evolution um, over a relatively small number of generations. And that's been shown kind of over and over again in a lot of yeah. different species, including humans. So, Indeed. Um, if you take a look at the uh, Fox Farm experiment in Novosibirsk, um, yeah. there was the... Uh, a group of scientists who I believe were originally set up in the 1960s with this um, collection of foxes that had been previously kept by fox farms, you know, for fur. And um, they bred them for a couple of generations to see if they could selectively breed for um, domestication uh, and for the foxes to be, you know, docile and easy to um, look after. And they succeeded very quickly. In a couple of generations, they had much calmer, much more domesticated acting individuals um, amongst their fox population. And in the opposite direction, they also bred for the more extremely wild ones, um, you know, to, to kind of create a more broad set of data. Uh, and so, because they had such a striking result so quickly, um, they decided to continue. And they noticed very quickly that the more they bred foxes to be domesticated, the more they also started to have floppy ears and shorter muzzles and waggy tails, and it looked a bit more like dogs. Um, it sort of seems to be that there's genetic linkage, obviously, between the, the behaviour and the appearance. Yeah. Um, but you can you can see that that kind of experimentation, um, you know, that's that's where artificial selection has put a very strong pressure on a population to produce a particular trait and then you can get it to happen in very short order 
And I think that people underestimate how much pressure our genetics are under from the effects of domesticating ourselves by living in towns and cities and among each other, as opposed to being hunter-gatherers. There's a, uh, so that, that experiment, if I recall correctly, um, takes three generations to breed um, that kind of domesticness into a fox. Mm-hmm. And there was a follow-up two years ago, uh, a genetic follow-up to it, where... Um, well, I mean, the, the same experiment is still ongoing, you know, at Novosibirsk. I... Uh, then, then maybe they were using data from this, but basically there was an experiment uh, that showed that those changes are linked potentially to uh, neural crest-derived cells. That, um, and there were a couple of, there was a paper published where hmm. I remember it being fairly robust. Um, and here, here's the value of having academic institutions <laughs> um, doing some of your science for you. There's there's decreasing support for academia, I know, as time goes on, but every now and then, they do some cool stuff, where uh, it turns out that when you uh, hit this particular population of neural crest cells, so when one positive cells, for those of you who know, uh, who, who do developmental or brain stuff, um, this, if this population does not migrate very fast, uh, then you change the uh, shape of the craniofacial bones uh, and a number of craniofacial features, such as ears, such as eyebrows uh, or eye ridges and foreheads. Um, and you also, because these are you know, part of a, a neural lineage, change the, um, the, the behavior of the animal. And uh, it has been hypothesized, and I don't know if it's been proven, but it's been um, substantially supported that this might be why uh, we see that difference between dogs and wolves, um, that mm-hmm. difference in these domesticated foxes, and we have domesticated ferrets um, that have a uh, d- different, they have different demeanor and they have different appearance. Um, yeah, I think there was there was one other. What was the? There's another species that uh, they looked at. Cats, possibly. Hmm. Was it cats? Might have been house cats, yeah. Uh, and they kind of showed these these same things, and it's because he hit the same he hit that population through whatever means, um, and because and so you get this uh, multifaceted effect just because of the cells. Consider this: over time, there has been uh, a general decrease in the length of the human jaw because we've been eating more cooked meat. But I think it also might be related um, to the evolutionary pressure of us um, becoming more sort of interdomesticated between each other by you know, living together more uh, in places. Um, and I think that there's, you know, a, a fair amount of research needs to go into like these genetic links between behavior and appearance that you see in animals of various kinds. And whether those also appear in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I, that was commented on in this paper, but of course, people are very, and they should be, incredibly cautious to uh, do such sort of linkages. Yes, human because obviously there, there is a certain eugenics aspect to that that we really don't want yeah. to go into. Yep, yep. Um, I, there's a fascinating book that I read a couple months ago about genetics and race and etc uh 
the Fatal Invention. Incredible book. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I, I did want to touch on, I don't, I don't want to rapidly change the topic, but I kind of have a segue uh, to one thing I really wanted to talk about on this subject mm-hmm. um, of the scientific process and scientific thinking versus magical thinking. So uh, one thing that y'all and the listeners might notice in the way that I talk about these things is I couch a lot of it. I use these phrases that, oh, I'm not certain. I'm not an expert. I, you know, this was supported, not proven, all that kind of stuff. That language is incredibly disliked by enormous percentages of the population. Um, Uh, Hang on. Do you have data to back that up? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. There have been, there have been studies, uh, sociological and uh, sociological studies done where uh, certain political identities, self-identified uh, uh, political people in, in the U.S., I believe, um, probably the U.S. and the U.K., uh, where the language that you use with them needs to be more forceful um and assertive uh, yeah more more assertive yes that's the term i should use assertive not forceful um because when a scientist perhaps comes up and says well we have data to support that the earth is round and someone says that's bullshit it's flat pardon my language but that's kind of how the conversation goes yeah um and the scientist says no 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 i can i can show you i i I have this model and I have these papers and um, and then the person says, oh, so you have proof. And the scientist will say, well, well, no, we don't we don't have proof. Proof isn't the thing we do because proof isn't a thing that happens out of science. You don't get proof. And to be a good scientist, you need to not believe in proof um, aggressively uh, because otherwise you will find yourself cemented in opinions that are in opinions. And, and opinions are bad. They're, they're not science. They're great to have for, you know, determining your personal morals and ethical systems. Of course. But the thing is that society lives in the here and now, not in the eventually when science has managed to get to the point where you've got Six Sigma about everything. So we have to assume that, that there does need to be an opinion. Uh, in order for society to function as of now on the best possible knowledge that it can ascertain so far. Yeah, we, we've got we've got two things that science has come as close to proving as it will probably ever get, and that is the Big Bang happened. Period. End of story. There is no argument against it unless you go into faith, and at that point, there's no point in talk. There's no point in arguing anymore. Um. And evolution is the other one. Evolution happens. It just don't, there's no argument against it. It is just a thing. And again, someone wants to bring up faith, stop the argument because there's no point in talking about it. You you cannot reason someone out of a situation that they didn't reason themselves into. Quote from someone, I forget. I love, I love that quote. Yeah. And that, that comes out. Uh, sorry, I know, I'm, I know I'm just babbling a lot here. I promise I'll shut up in a second. But, but it comes out... <laughs> this podcast very... is made of this. Continue. <laughs> it, it comes out as very aggressively like anti-religion. I identify as Christian. I, I, I am a faithful human being. I'm a spiritual human being. Um, and I don't have any problem with saying 
that once someone brings God or spirits or whatever into a discussion about the origin of the earth, you can't you can't talk to them about science anymore. There's just not a discussion to be had. Um, it, th those things are in different spheres. Uh, that's just how it is. Well, I would like to say that it is possible that there is some kind of real, um, you know, verifiable origin for some kind of, uh, you know, interpretation, you might say, of, of spirits or of, of souls, but that we have yet to devise a suitable and scientifically rigorous method to detect um, the, the proof for that, or if you don't want to call it the proof, then at least the, the closest thing you can get to a proof. Yeah, there's there's no support for it, and there are a lot of people who will say that there is. Um, there have been uh, many experiments that have been done uh, to, for instance, test the memory of water, uh, or to or or to test um, uh, a psychic connection between two people. Uh, there was a one that I was told about where they put two people um, who I I can't remember how they connected them, but I don't maybe they were brothers or something. And they put one in a room on one side of a building and one in a room on the other side of a building and flicked on the light in one room and the brother in the other room was able to say, aha, the light's on now. When you go into any of those experiments, if you ask, every time people who run those things have been asked, what were your methods? Hmm. What were, where's your data? Um, yet you, you just start getting backpedaling and they will they'll backpedal right through a wall. They they just it's you won't get a rigorous experiment out of that. You will get someone who is doing parlor tricks, um, or someone who is just you know straight up. They, they might not know what they're doing. They might be lying, and they might not know what they're doing. But <laughs> it's one of those two things. Yeah, or a little bit of each. <laughs> yeah. And I hate saying that because I want to believe this stuff is real very badly. Uh, I, oh, I, I, know. Think, I think it's cool. I think it should not be discounted. Um, it, it it is bothersome to me that people fall for it and believe in it uh, so consistently and so thoroughly and drive so much money into it. Um, yeah, especially when these are the same people who expect above and beyond reason. Um, when it comes to the amount of rigor that um, they want to hear from scientists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, so I, I don't know the way to um, to get past that kind of barrier that a lot of people have, where they they don't understand that science is open to change at all times i mean yeah. the mask thing how many masks do you need to wear is a mask doing any good do we need two right now we need two um that that's, that's my most recent data point um mm -hmm. and a lot of people a lot of people laughed at it because they're like why do we need two now we only need, needed one well because the data changed and because as a good scientist when you when you observe superior data if someone ever got superior data showing that the big bang didn't happen you can bet the scientific community, the best among them, will say, okay. <laughs> you know? Yeah. If the data shows it, fine. Um, Once they're convinced. And so, 
I've heard arguments for like mm -hmm. we just need to expand scientific education. I, I think there's I think it's more than that. I think it is much more than just the education system. Okay. Um so really people um, ahead, sorry, sorry. I was just thinking that to, to, to educate people um, about science, you've obviously got to get them interested in it in the first place. Um, and that can be a challenge sometimes. You know, it can be difficult to make science seem more interesting and less like you're just spending forever assembling, uh, you know, lists of references to various other scientific papers that all were lists of references to more scientific papers. So, you know, to, to really bring it to life, um, I think one of the things that you can do is you can say, well, what do you, um, what, what do you as, as, as a sort of, as a child when you were growing up, what did you think really was magical to you? What really was an awesome idea that you would love to be able to do when you grow up or, or somewhere in your life? You know, maybe it's to be able to fly, maybe it's, uh, to be able to to shape shift or transform or something maybe it's that you want to uh you know be able to do uh some kind of telepathy and you know you, you can say to people okay wh which of these things do you want to do because if you want to do any of these things first we need to figure out the sort of fundamental um kind of materials the the ingredients the things that are going to be needed to actually assemble uh, a way to do that um, in the way that you've seen in you know fiction uh, and in um, magical stories uh, because obviously at the moment we have technology and technology is great you know and it gets us some of these things already you know you, you could say that me talking to you right now over the internet to make this podcast is like I um, I mean I'm obviously wearing a wireless headset to do this you could call that a telepathy prosthesis um, and you wouldn't be wrong it is a telepathy prosthesis um, granted it's not a very efficient one because it involves a conversion of the th thought processes into audio uh, patterns and you know then that audio gets converted into electronic signals and uh, those are converted into radio waves that go down to the little dongle plugged into my computer that then encodes, um, you know, a, a digital signal that gets sent over another wireless connection uh, to my phone, which is acting as an internet router at the moment, and then that's another wireless connection across to a cell tower, and then from there it's into some fiber optic cables, you know, and it's going all the way across the Atlantic, and then to some servers that belong to Discord, and getting processed by them, and and all that is happening, and it's coming back down through the cables to your house um, eventually and your discord client is processing all of that uh, data and bringing you some audio through your headphones or through your speakers so you can hear me talking and all that's happening in a absolutely tiny amount of time you know nanoseconds microseconds and that is normal to us now. Isn't that magical in and of itself, in a way? Just that, that we could do such things. Yeah, I think um, you know if um, if you showed this, uh, to, if you actually like showed like a modern phone 
to someone from a hundred years ago, then they might even think that it is magical. Exactly. So you say to people, what is magical to you now? You know, what would be amazing? What would blow your mind for you to see? You know, maybe it's like those those yogis um, in India who claim to be able to levitate and yet somehow you never see any evidence of it. But, you know, th that kind of that kind of ability to to defy gravity, to defy the norms and expectations of physics and of society uh, and of what people assume is possible. Uh, and if we can say that, it, you know, technology at the moment can obviously do these things after a fashion in a very limited kind of way, but can we improve that to the point where it is no longer recognizable as the kind of technology that we see today, but is instead much more hidden from view, much more kind of incorporated into ourselves, into who and what we are, into our evolution. I think that's the kind of thing that, that, to me at least, is exciting about science. Now, I don't know if that's the same for everybody else. You know, other people who hear about it might be like, ah, big deal, you know. That's not really that magical or interesting to me. Or even if it is, it's not what I particularly want to get involved in. Fine, you know, not everybody wants to do science anyway. Some of them want to do art or whatever. But I feel like there's there's got to be some way we can engage with more people that way, you know? Uh, yeah, I think there, there are a lot of different ways to get to people. And, and you know, I kind of want everyone to be a scientist. I, I think that it is correct to want everyone to be able to think like a scientist. I think that the best artists... Um, are actually doing science they're not thinking about it like that necessarily um but when you think about people they're trying to figure out how to get a particular um color of paint uh when you look at some brilliantly colored paints or when you are trying to um get a perspective evoke an emotion etc all of those things you have to you do have to do your trials for that and you have to have a, a particular thing that you want to have happen and i think it is correct for people to think in terms of i have a question i have an observation i'm going to attempt to address it this is what i think is happening okay i tried what did i learn uh, that progression is something all people should know and appreciate uh that does not mean everyone needs to go into a lab yeah. but i think that by getting that perspective and then getting people to trust that when someone is coming to them from a laboratory or from a, um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Like a, a school of architecture, uh, whatever it is, um, any specialized discipline that, that that person is applying those principles to a degree that the average person never needs to think about. Yes. Um, and it, it's the, it's the fact that first people don't even know how to robustly apply those concepts or indeed uh, the importance of them yeah uh and and then definitely the fact that they don't trust scientists is a completely different thing that's a that's political and sociological and anthropological and um those are those are things that you know need to be addressed on other vectors yeah so I'm just disabling notifications on one of my chat rooms because it decided to make a ping noise. Okay. <laughs> so it's your thing. I, I literally just turned on um, Ear Trumpet to see which one of my programs that I have on is doing that. 
Sorry. Uh, no problem. It's, um, so certain chat rooms are important enough for me to need notifications from them whenever I'm not doing a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I had one. I had one more. One more thought to ramble about. Shoot, where did it go? <laughs> I have so many strong opinions on this for a good reason. Yeah. This is literally my profession. Uh, I'm, I'm happy. I'm always happy to talk about. Well, I mean, it's it's literally my profession too. You know, I I have dedicated my life to trying to solve um, some major bioengineering problems, so that we can create what I like to call an evolution revolution. Um, it's like you said. You know, we can change what evolution itself is. Um, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it's just you went strangely silent for a second. I I agreed. I didn't have anything to add to it. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we we have the ability now in the technology that we already have. In fact, we we really had this ability already with the technology we had ten years ago. It's just that it takes us time to actually process how to use it. Um, and yeah, definitely. Um, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, part of it, I, I might be going on a different direction than you were going, but uh, Go on. one of the things that is upsetting as a person who is at the particular institution I'm at is that specifically gene editing technology is behind by a measurable 10 years. Um, and then, of course, you can apply uh, whatever other metrics you want to say that's probably behind by, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Yeah. Um, and it's because again it's because the uh first faith in scientific institutions was shattered uh mm. due to um poor bookkeeping that led to the death of a patient yeah. and then that was used as political um uh, uh ammunition ammunition to just shut down gene editing technology for literally a decade yeah. um, I, I haven't heard of that yeah, so at uh, University of Pennsylvania, the lab of Jim Wilson, um, they developed a uh, potential gene editing based cancer therapy. The patient who was receiving the therapy um, was was that in in the nineteen nineties. I believe, I believe so. My, I want to say. Late 90s. Yeah, I think 96, 97, thereabouts. Yeah. So I, I might have my timing off by a little bit. Mm. What what is maybe? I've I've gone through this before. Maybe it was maybe a solid 20 years because the the end of this story is that a couple of years ago, gene editing technology was used to wonderfully, beautifully solve um uh, uh cancer um. Leukemia, wasn't it? A type, of, a type of leukemia, lymphoblastic leukemia, um, in a permanent fashion. Yeah. Uh, and that was like that was the kind, and it came uh, from collaborations with the same lab. It's very cool. Uh, can I ask you actually, uh, when you said in a permanent fashion, um, do you mean that the DNA of that person's cells was so permanently rewritten? that even if their cells were all replaced, you know, by the natural cell cycle, uh, those replacement cells would still have the edited DNA. 
the uh, the edit was to make their immune system recognize a cell type specific receptor as a foreign um, as a foreign body. So right. yes, their immune system from now on recognizes that white blood cell type as something it needs to kill. Right now, obviously, there's a problem with that. Now they can't have that particular white blood cell type ever again. Luckily, that one is not. It's it's one that you you want. It's kind of like having a spleen, you know. You want it, um, but but they can now those two patients, and I'm sure there are more now. Uh, need to get injections. I think it's twice yearly. Um, so that they can have some of those cells in their bloodstream for a little while, uh, and um, and and survive. But uh, you see, that to me doesn't get that type of cancer. All right, again. I get you, but that to me doesn't sound like a permanent solution. Rather, it sounds like a solution up until you cannot, for some reason, get this injection. At which point, it's not a solution. I don't. Like, I'll need to look up what you know if they just like die immediately. I, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, but what what I'm saying is that they, you know, it's not perfect. I, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you it's perfect. Uh, yeah. What I'm saying is that they successfully, through a through gene editing technology, took cells out of these patients, edited them, put them back in, solved the problem. Well, um, I mean, it's not quite how I would do it if I was in you know in charge of that but yeah <laughs> i mean i can certainly understand that it's it's had some positive impact for them and that's great um but i think that there is there is room for improvement you know obviously and they knew i can guarantee you they knew that at the time like, yeah. that's how science works no one no one applies their uh no intelligent person applies their you know duct tape cell based therapy to a person and says, "Yeah, that's fine." They, no, um, they, yeah, you know, that's that's not a that's not a way to do biomedical science. You Indeed. say, "Oh, you can live today," whereas previously you were going to be dead today. Yeah, and then you iterate on that until you can come up with you know a, a more and more long term solutions. Mm hmm. Um. But the, the whole the whole thing was that uh, yeah that um, the bookkeeping for that one patient who died uh, was incorrect um, and it turned out that they did have some secondary condition I can't remember what it was but they had some secondary condition that made them that meant that their body was just going to fully reject um, the type of treatment that they were yeah. receiving and they died very very rapidly. Hindsight has twenty twenty vision as we know. Uh, and you know this is that, that kind of secondary condition thing is one of the reasons why I really advocate for the use of a simulation of some kind that is based on your actual genome and can spot these kinds of conditions and, and spot where there's there's something genetically different about you that that is going to make a problem if you just you know use the same kind of gene edit as was going to be used with somebody else yeah Whole genome sequencing and natural history studies and genome data banks are, especially for rare diseases, being um, more and more uh, pushed um, oh. as time goes on because okay. it's so useful. Okay. So, 
I wanted to say to um, Atha's idea, like, good luck getting that much um, data throughput with a computer. But turns out the human genome is only like 750 megabytes. So it's very small. Yeah. In terms of like data that we handle these days. Yeah. It's not actually that difficult in terms of the the initial quantity. But bear in mind that um, what you're looking at when you look at that 750 megabytes of, of genetic data is literally just the quaternary code itself of, of DNA. And there, there's a hell of a lot to unpack from that. It's very compressed. Yeah, it's, it's a 3 billion base pairs. Um, yeah. You got your 3.5 billion base pairs, 3, three to 3.5, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, mm. And then within that, you've got your 25 to 30,000 genes um, that are recognized. Again, that's another really old number. I have no idea what it is now. Yeah, but the the more important factor is the you have multiple uses of the same nucleotides in various places. You know, the circumstances in which a particular cell finds itself will dictate what combinations of genes it will use. And then the combinatorial results of putting those um, genes together or the, the proteins that are produced from them, uh, you know, in any of 300 different cell types can give you so much variety. The, the reason that these um, larger genome databases are being pushed so much uh, for one, personalized medicine is a popular topic. Um, mm. For two, a lot of incredibly rare diseases, um, even if they do have common origins, um, for instance, our, ours is that one uh, base pair replacement. Um, when I say ours, I mean the, the lab I work in. Um, yeah. And, but, you know, not every single one of them has the exact same manifestation. Uh, in, in these rare diseases, you have these broad spans and you actually have people who have the mutation and have little to no effect. And so, but, but you can't just scan the other, you know, the three billion base pairs and try to pick which one is causative. Um, and so by doing these, by putting together these massive databases, um, you can eventually leverage that incredible technology that we have, for instance, through R programming, um, to start to identify, okay, what is what are the real differences from on a genetic level, potentially on an epigenetic level, uh, and and then if, obviously whenever you start doing things like that, you really, 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 really need to control for socioeconomic circumstance, um, and you know, natural history, all those things. Um, obviously, that's incredibly difficult, but people yeah. are doing it. It's, it's happening. And I think people who are looking at scientists and sort of looking at the work that, that is being done have to remember that science can claim to be, um, you know, a, a particular degree of, of accurate, but there's always going to be outliers. There's always going to be situations that nobody could have really thought of or predicted just because they're so obscure and they will turn up from time to time and so you cannot be sure that, that every last chance of a, a thing going wrong has ever been dealt with yeah um and that, that that's that's a good thing to think about is uh, uh one 
aspect of rigorous scientific thinking is the being able to assess what your assumptions are. A lot of people, most people, probably all people, go through their day, and for most of their day, they have no idea what their assumptions are. They are acting on them um, without being consciously aware of what they have assumed about the world. Yeah, and, and I'm sure that happens to us too. And that's fine. That's yeah. a that's a normal way to live your life uh, because many of your assumptions are reasonable and will not impact anything that you do in negative ways. Um, but when you are designing an experiment, and this is, yeah, this links in very closely to my little comment on socioeconomic circumstance, um, you, you need to be aware of what your assumptions are. And a lot of assumptions that have been made in biomedical science um, have been race-based, for instance, or gender-based, or LGBTQ status-based, when in fact, uh, the potentially more causative thing is what is going on in terms of that person's, uh, uh, their, their health, basically, yeah. in society. Uh, Andrik, would you mind not typing loudly whilst we're trying to talk, please? Uh, all right. Thank you. Um, and that's in the, that's been written on extensively and it's still being, uh, it's still being learned now that I, so many assumptions or some of them, many of them even made in good faith, uh, by the medical community attempting to say, oh, well, you know, these people's genetics are different. We have black people and white people and, uh, this Hispanic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously we should personalize their medicine to them, right? Um, no. <laughs> Indeed. Not on that basis. Yeah. That is a social construct. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you look at the color of skin and people assume that that's somehow um, always going to be linked to lots and lots of other traits. Uh, but it's not that simple. Really, the traits are mix and match. And, you know, just because you've got a particular color of skin doesn't automatically mean you're going to have this particular set of other traits right and and people who are aware of that can say it can look at that and they could be like oh, i know what the nine genes responsible for your melanic content are okay and there are only nine of them um, yeah but if you're if you're not aware of that and if you know fully half of the scientific community has been telling you for your entire life that uh there's a genetic basis for race then obviously you're going to go into it with this assumption that, oh, okay, this person's genes are so different from mine that they need a different heart medication. And, yeah. and they don't. <laughs> um, and that's never been, that's never been proven. Uh, that's another thing that was really beautiful to see in that book was that uh, when you, again, when you rigorously look at the methodology and the assumptions and the, et cetera, and the data, yep. you find out that it, actually has never been supported yeah uh, what was the book you were talking about just there fatal invention and who's that by it is by oh goodness uh it is bad of me to not know her name because she goes to upenn um she is a uh professor here fatal invention by dorothy roberts Dorothy Roberts, thank you. Yep. 
some of it's outdated. Some of the information about um, population genetics is a little bit outdated by now, but uh, at the time, it, she was she had looked into the cutting edge technologies that were being used um, and done a fantastic job of investigating how they were being used. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And, and I bring it up um, partially because it's incredibly important in modern society to be aware of, and, and partially because it does tie in so closely with the appropriate and accurate application of scientific thinking. Nice. Well, uh, thank you very much for mentioning that. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, Andrik. Yeah. Uh, so... How would you um, think that that you would sort of see? Oh. One moment. I certainly would. Sorry about that. <laughs> My Discord decided it was a good time to crash. No, no problem. We, we count. It was fine. Vamped count. I don't know what the slang is. You did what? Sorry. We we filled the time. Okay. Um. <laughs> sorry. Uh. Yeah. I was going to ask you a question on trick, but it fell out of my head for obvious reasons. Uh. I really wanted to ask. Like you, you went out on the wood and. <laughs> and now I'll never get to hear it. It was such a cliffhanger. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I think it was just something like, um, would you say that uh, science um, has sort of, what's the word, um, really piqued your interest, um, you know, since you got into school and since you have learned more about it? I um, hmm, don't really know because I'm not like I used to think of myself as like pretty much like a scientist but now I I now I know that I'm actually like really really lazy <laughs> I don't really like I I don't wouldn't travel like research things I would rather just benefit from the science that other people yeah but that's uh, freeloading you know <laughs> yeah I, I, I am just <laughs> I'm sorry, it's just the way I am, I guess. I mean, a lot of people want to do that, but, um, you know, if, if everybody did that, nobody would be scientists. Well, yeah. yeah. But it's, it's fine to... Look, so scientists are lazy. Let me, let me tell you that. Um, a, a lot of scientists are super lazy, and, and they, they apply their laziness through cleverness, because no one wants to sit down and count cells. For 10 hours um, some people end up doing it because they don't have a better idea at the time um, but then you then you come up with a robot who counts cells for you um, yes and then you spend ages trying to build and develop and maintain the robot oh there's an there is an xkcd for us yes <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, where is it where is it, where is it? it, it just be a is this one yep and very Let's have a look. So, I think comes from auto, meaning self, and mating, meaning screwing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is XKCD's comic 1319, Automation. 
what, what you are supposed to do is benefit from the people who specialize in a certain thing and let them specialize in it. Division of labor. Um, don't. Yeah. Like, and, and if, if your, if what your interests and your talents and your, you know, t uh, uh, for lack of a better word, spiritual inclinations, um, drive you to do a thing that is not the, you know, grinding application of science, that's fine. That's not, that's not a bad, that's a normal thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I should point out based on this comic here that if you sort of view the world as um, obviously you know, it's got a very large population and it, within that population you've got clusters of people who are all trying to work on different things and each time anybody encounters an obstacle to their work be that a literal obstacle or something a bit more subtle like you know having to spend forever doing something really boring then they will try to usually develop some kind of tool that will help solve that problem. Or they'll try and use an existing tool, if one exists, that, that will do the job. And so, you know, yes, you will find that for each individual group, you get this swap from the theory to the reality seen in this XKCD comic, you know, as each group finds themselves having to support the development of a tool. But that tool is then something that if they make it available to the public, you know, open source it, etc., is then something that other groups can use to do the same task and move on to the next task in the procedure and encounter new obstacles and develop new tools against. And then another group will come along and they'll be able to get two or three further steps into the procedure before they have to develop new tools and so forth. And eventually the problem gets solved. It just takes a hell of a lot longer than anyone wanted it to. Right, but in, in, that, in that process, not every single person needs to be the person driving forward. And I think that the, I think that the glorification of the, the White Tower Academic Institute and saying, oh, these people are the smartest. Mm. These, these are the scientists with an H, the scientists. Um, yeah. And they, that is another, another thing that has made science difficult to trust for a, a lot of communities because uh there's this elitism to it of like, yeah. uh, you know if yeah we're we're discovering we're always pushing boundaries blah 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 what are you doing you're you're just a cog no no the the scientist is not better the scientist is applying their skills in the way that is best for them and yeah if everyone else just apply their skills in the way that is best for them and uh there's no like i'm not i'm not going to go out there it's like not not everyone is like super equal we didn't all start with you know the D, &D die rolls or, or uh, not die rolls but the the skill by system right um but the but at the same time it's not a better or worse it's a you're doing one job and you're doing another job and yeah there is well exactly and sometimes you end up changing your job to suit the needs of the uh, task and it helps if if you can quantify to yourself and the group that are working with you the uh, impact of the task um, and its results on society uh, and from that work out 
How many other people are going to benefit, and how many other people, therefore, are going to be interested in seeing this um, being brought to fruition? Who, if it isn't then brought to fruition on time, might themselves decide to put in more funding or bring some help together to to help to complete the task? Because you could say, all right, it turns out that we cannot complete the entire task, but what we can do is we can develop a tool that makes it easier to do the first part of it. And then you can t say that to the other people who are interested, and, and they'll say, okay, well, at least you've made some kind of progress in the right direction, uh, and you're now busy supporting that piece of progress by you know, developing and maintaining that tool. We're going to take it from here. We're going to do the next step. And that kind of collaboration, I think, is at the foundation of science. It's at the foundation of technological development itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important not to be afraid of the unfinished task, um, even though it is a very daunting thing that I must admit has really worried me. You know, when I've been working on gene editing systems and so on, I mean... There have been times when I've really felt like I've got to do this. I've got to complete the entire thing. I've got to build the whole system and have, you know, end-to-end -end completion of this task, no matter how long it takes, even if I have to extend my lifespan. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there's no harm in being driven, just as long as you don't let that consume you. Because at the end of the day, even if you've just developed part of the system, some kind of amount of the tool, and then that has become as much as you can do, that's still more progress than was made before. You've still done something useful in the right direction that other people can then pick up the torch and run with it from there. Yeah, my my current my current therapeutic uh, techniques are uh, what is it? Rational emotive behavior therapy (REBT). Um, and uh, because it's new to me, I like it a lot. I value novelty, of course, uh, more than I should. Uh, but it speaks directly to that, where you would like this to be, you would like the project to be a whole project, period. Yeah. Um, and and I even phrased that wrong. You said it has to be done. Yeah. Um, and REBT says, no, 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 that's toxic. Because if it has to be done, then there's no relaxation. There's, there's, there's no room for error. There's no room for imperfection. You would like it to be done yeah but if it's not the world continues indeed um and that is a, a very that's another very powerful thing for any human um but you know since we're talking about science for a scientist you know uh when you're you're worried this has to be done or i can't publish this has to be done or my my work is worthless um no no no, no. you you still made progress it you would you would like the complete thing to be done um, but but the world will continue turning uh, e even if it's not yeah and, and, and you'll be in that world and, that, and that's fine and obviously we would like that world to be as far along the path of our um, chosen vocations as possible you know we, we want to see the most progress possible um, but you know the definition of possible is variable it depends on so many factors and those factors can sometimes appear at the last possible second while you're in the middle of doing the project. And you suddenly find, oh, 
you know, if I had this map in my head of, you know, here's me at point A and I'm going to point B. Uh, and, you know, yes, there's some landscapes across and it's going to be interesting, but I can see point B in the distance and I know the map between here and there and I'm going to get there. And then suddenly you discover as you're partway along that route, actually there was a fold in the map. When you unfold it, there's a whole load more distance to cover and it's got all sorts more features and valleys and mountains in the way and it's going to take you a lot longer. And also, oh god, B was alive. B was wrong all along. I didn't yeah. want to go to B. I didn't see. Perhaps. Or, or perhaps you do still want to go to B, but you've got to go via X, Y, and Z to actually get there. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway. And sometimes X, Y, and Z are nowhere near the direct route between A and B. And you've really got to zigzag on this map, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I uh, I think we need to put a little bit of space before before the upcoming meeting or yeah. I, I would like to. Okay. Um, we don't have to. I would like that. Well, the upcoming <laughs> meeting is in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. And I forgot. I must admit, but that's because we were having so much fun. So, with that in mind, um I'm sure we could continue long into the night if we didn't have a meeting coming up, but uh I've been Atamanatha Kitsune, and we have Andrik. Um, my, I, I, <laughs> Thank I you very much. I just out for some time and just couldn't follow anything. Oh, sorry <laughs> about that. Uh, no problem. Well, uh, perhaps there's, there's some therapeutic benefit to that anyway. Yeah. And our awesome Cyberdrak, thank you ever so much for coming around today and thank you. joining yeah. us in our... Yeah, our random chimwag about science. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, keep on duking on. <laughs> so, uh, take care and have yourselves a lovely time. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye.